The reading for this afternoon is taken from Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, the verses 1 to 6. And you'll be able to find that on page 1416 of your pew Bible, 1416. We'll be reading this in connection with the conception and birth of our Lord as we find it summarized in Lord's Day 14. And in connection as well with our home visit theme for the year, looking to the end of days. Revelation 12, verses 1 to 6. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And war broke out in heaven. Sorry. Uh, So far, the reading of the word of God. And now we'll be also reading from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism has been taking us through the Apostles' Creed one section at a time, and we've reached Lord's Day 14, which you can find on page 528 of your book of praise. Lord's Day 14. Where the question is asked, What do you confess when you say, He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? The eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thus, he is also the true seed of David, and like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? He is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in the opening words of our passage today, we are introduced to a marvelous sight. A woman stands in the heavens above the Apostle John. John has at this point been exiled to the island of Patmos. And he has received a revelation from heaven for the encouragement of God's people, for the upbuilding of the church. And he sees in this vision a woman standing in the heavens above him, clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland or a crown of twelve stars. 
Who is this woman? And what's going on here? The Apostle John, the author of this book, has been given a series of visions for the comfort and encouragement of the church. These visions are not chronological. That's, that is, they're not a historical timeline from start to finish. Some occasions even repeat the same series of historical events. But rather, they are a message for the Apostle John. And this message that arches over top of the whole of the book of Revelation is this. Things are going to get bad for the Christian church in John's day. But God wins. In our passage today, we see that being played out once again. The woman in this situation represents the church. And you can see that in the language that's being used to describe her. The church is the bride of Christ, always pictured as a woman. Twelve is a number of fullness used to represent twelve tribes, twelve apostles. And stars are often a reference to the angels charged with watching over the church, watching over the people of God. Being clothed with the sun and having the moon under her feet, the church is the bearer of a divine, supernatural light in the world. The moon has a borrowed and lesser light. It's changeable, going from reflecting light in its fullness to a crescent, to utter darkness, and then back to light again. Because of this, it's been suggested that the moon represents the Old Testament people of God on which the church is founded. The Old Testament was a time filled with shadows and prophecy pointing ahead to what was to come. It was a lesser reflection of a glory that was on its way. The New Testament church, however, is the one who is clothed in Christ and all of his glory. She is clothed in Christ who is, as the prophet Malachi describes him, the son of righteousness. And it is with him as her hope that we declare today the Son became incarnate. And we will see this, first of all, in a marvelous birth, second, in fierce opposition, third, in a Son who rules, and finally, in a wilderness refuge. As the Apostle John is gazing up at the wondrous vision of this woman who lights up the sky, he sees her seized by labor pains, and she begins to give birth. The child, we learn later on, is a male child. And who can John take him to be if not the Christ? There is no question. Christ was a Jew. He was physically descended from Abraham. A covenant child of a covenant nation under the covenant promises of God. But this child who is being born in the vision of John was so much more than an ordinary Jew. Christ was and is the Son of the Most High God. Now it's at this point that people tend to get a little bit confused. Perhaps they say they can accept the fact that He is the Son of God, but it's the whole series of events that surrounds His birth that becomes a little bit fuzzy at the edge, around the edges. Since Christ's coming in the flesh is of central importance to the church, and it's the hinge on which all the benefits that the church receives hangs, it's necessary to get a 
clear picture of what the incarnation really was. The word incarnate is taken from a Latin word, which literally means in the flesh. If you're familiar with the phrase carnal desires, then you'll know that it means the desires that your flesh has. Or maybe a word you're more familiar with, carnivore, which means flesh or meat eater. The incarnation means that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And he came by way of a virgin birth. But how does this work? What does this look like? Not too long ago, someone I spoke with had a co-worker who had this very same question arise. This co-worker, who was a Christian, was a little confused. She had the idea of God coming down in a human form, kind of like the Greek gods from ancient myth walking in the world. But this is not the way it happened with Mary. Mary was a virgin from start to finish. She was a virgin when God began His work in her and when He finished it. So what happened? God Himself described what would happen through an angel in Luke 1 verse 35, saying, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. God is a God who can form life where He wills. And just as it's a miracle when He created life in the beginning, so it was a miracle when He formed life in the womb of this virgin. This wasn't a new creation, or the child wouldn't share in the flesh and blood of the human race, passed down from parent to child. If that was the case, it would look like the flesh and blood of the human race and maybe be identical in every way except for sin, but it wouldn't truly be sharing in it. No, Jesus Christ was truly born of the Virgin Mary. As our catechism says, the eternal Son who is and remains true and eternal God took upon himself true human nature from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary through the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is the child that the Apostle John saw being born in his miraculous vision. And this birth happened in such a way that would draw the attention of the world to this extraordinary son. This is a unique and miraculous child. He is one who shares in the flesh and blood of the human race through his mother, he is one who shares in divinity, who is true God and true man, fully God and fully man. He is a child of the covenant, a child of the people of God. What will become of this child? John wonders. It becomes clear shortly after that that this child is not only heir to all the promises and sorrows of the nation, but he's also the fulfillment of the covenant promises. But he does not immediately face this point. He does not immediately face everything that he will become. First, this child faces fierce opposition on his way. We see another great sign appearing in the heavens. 
a red dragon, great and fiery, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems or crowns upon his head. His form marks him out to be the devil, that murderer from the beginning. And though he looks magnificent and powerful, his evil and cruelty knows no bounds. The innocence and weakness of his child, this child doesn't slow him down in the least, and he gets ready to tear him apart before he can even touch the ground. In Revelation 17, the heads and horns of a similar beast are interpreted as kings and powers of this earth that have fallen under the control of Satan. And truly, there was no question about the fact that he had taken control of earthly power around the time that Jesus Christ was born. As this mother struggles with birth pains, the devil makes every effort to destroy this child before he can come into the world And oh, how we see the people of God did struggle with birth pains. Blessed with the presence of God and his guiding care, the bride of God still faced the sorrows of wicked kings, false prophets, and nations around that afflicted her at every turn. But at no time was her situation more severe, and at no time was she in greater danger than here, when Jesus Christ, the hope of the nations, was born. The devil stepped up his murderous efforts. Bent on destruction, he incited the wicked king Herod, who was ruler over Israel in the day that Jesus Christ was born. He incited him to jealousy, making him fear for his throne. Having heard the Messiah would be born, he carefully asked where that could be. And when he had found out Jesus Christ would be born in Bethlehem, we read in Matthew 2, verse 16, he sent forth and put to death all of the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. But the attack of the devil did not succeed. God had already spirited away his son, He looked ahead in time and he knew the devil's plans. And so he removed the Savior of the world and his mother, the young Virgin Mary, from harm's way. For us, this is a beautiful reminder. Many of us do have very difficult situations that we live in. Difficulty and sorrow in this life is inescapable. And it's the brokenness of sin that invades every aspect of this world. When it's not sin, it's the results of sin. Even the chemical balances in our own brains betraying us and driving us to depression. But consider this young woman, the Virgin Mary, probably about 14 years old, with the world powers of the day under the control of the devil himself on the edge of devouring this child that belonged to her the child of the nation of Israel, trying to overwhelm and destroy their young family. The same God that protected the Virgin Mary is the God who's watching over you. The devil himself doesn't have the power to stand against him, though he may rage. God snatched this child out of his grasp because he had a plan for him. For those of you who put your trust in Christ, 
You may not be the savior of the world yourselves, but you belong to the one who is. You are washed clean by him. And through him you can say with the catechism, he is my mediator. He is the one who brings me before the holy throne of grace. With his innocence and perfect holiness, he covers in the sight of God my sin in which I was conceived and born. Just as your heavenly father was interested in the protection of his son so that salvation could enter the world through him, he also cares about keeping those whom he has bought salvation for protected from the attacks of the evil one as well. Yes, the devil may rage. And the devil may do quite some damage while he's at it. There will be times when you'll feel or even be betrayed by those who are even in the church pew beside you or in your own family. If you are such a person leading those around you astray by the walk, by the way you talk, or by your walk of life, you need to recognize that you are doing the devil's work. And if you persist without repentance, you'll follow the devil to his ultimate end, hell. But this vision shows us that as much as the devil tries, as much as the devil rages, He cannot overturn God's ultimate plan, the salvation of those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our third point, the son who rules. The reason that the devil cannot overturn those who have truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is because of the son of God who was born into the world. That the son of God who was born into the world rules. In this life, we already saw a small beginning of this rule. Through the driving out of demons and through his commanding them to leave. Over his rule over the physical world, through commanding people to be healed. And they were, by his divine power. But we also see how in this life he ruled over himself. As the Catechism puts it, he is the true seed of David, meaning born, sharing the flesh and blood of his mother Mary, as we saw before. And he's a descendant of King King David's line. He's like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way that we were, but he ruled over his will, and he came out victorious. But we did not see his rule in its fullness during his time on earth. Though he was and is God, he had humbled himself when he came to earth in the flesh. And in humbling himself, he was making preparations for when he would be exalted over all. Now you'll notice that it seems like in the vision of John that there's no time whatsoever between the birth of the child and his being snatched up to heaven. And it's true from God's perspective, from the point of view of the history of God's people in the world, it was a mere moment in time. The Apostle John summarizes this in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, in the words of an early Christian confession of faith. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, 
preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. This is what happened in those moments of John's vision between the birth of the Son and his being snatched up into heaven. It seems quick, but much did happen during that time. Christ was born of a virgin sharing our flesh and blood, declared to the world when the Holy Spirit descended on him in the form of a dove. He lived the life of perfection, covering over the sins of the people. For a time, the devil seemed to be winning, even to the point of having Jesus on the cross. But all that happened according to God's plan, set in place before time began. The point of Jesus' greatest weakness, even being forsaken by the Father on the cross, became the point of his most powerful victory. As fully human, having taken on himself the flesh and blood by the Virgin Mary through the Spirit, he was able to be a representative of the human race at this point in time. And as fully God, he was able to bear the weight of the infinite wrath of God completely so that there's no punishment remaining. Because of all of this, having completed all of this and being victorious, he ascended into heaven and was received up to glory. Again, from the perspective of God's plan from the beginning of time, it's a mere blip in redemptive history. But it's from there that these earthly beginnings become God's heavenly rule, Christ's heavenly rule. From there, all authority is placed under his feet. And it's declared that he will rule all nations, ruling them, as the Apostle John writes, with a rod of iron. By mentioning a rod of iron, our eyes are directed to Psalm 2, verse 9, where we read how God the Son shall break the nations who oppose him, who try to rise up against him. This is a great comfort. Just recently, we learned how the government has taken away summer job funding from the people who do not vocally speak out in support of abortion. It's not just enough to remain silent on the matter, but you need to check off a box that indicates your support of it. Now, recently in Alberta, the government is pushing for gay-straight alliance clubs in Christian schools that measure up to the policies that the government has put in place. And they've put a timeline for all the schools to step in line. If the schools say that they cannot because it goes against what God has said, they will lose all their funding in a matter of months. And the current government in Alberta has suggested that they might strip them of their accreditation as well. All around the world, we read of increasing opposition to God and to Christ, the King over the world. But our Father in heaven has guaranteed that this will not be the end. He has guaranteed that our Savior rules and that His rule will eventually destroy the godlessness of the kingdoms of the earth. All earthly government policies will come to an end. But the reign of Christ will last forever. And it's that knowledge that allows the church to remain hopeful even as she flees to a wilderness refuge. Now that the sun is firmly established in heaven in our passage, 
with all authority placed under his feet, the devil turns his fury on the woman. We read in verses 13 and following what this looked like, looks like. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to earth, he persecuted the woman, the church, the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away like by the flood. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. This vivid and poetic description wraps into one picture the many trials that the church of Jesus Christ will have to face in this world. Beloved, this is what we can expect to face in this world. The devil, having lost the decisive battle of the war on the cross, has made it his ultimate desire to cause as much damage as he possibly can against the people of God. And he will do this in any way he can, through governments, through laws, through people in the workplace, even through family and friends if he can. But the church will not be overcome. God knew of her troubles even before she existed. God knew the troubles that would face her and he prepared a place for her. She will wait in the shelter that he provides until all the church is gathered in at the end of days. God will preserve his church. God will preserve for himself a people It seems sometimes like the church will be overwhelmed. Especially as we see the opposition going on throughout the world and increasing even in our own country. But God has kept a place for his church. The devil will not be able to destroy her. Because Christ was born into this world, as our catechism describes, born of a woman, living among us in the flesh, he shared in our human experience. And he could pay the price that God demanded of humanity. He bought the church with his blood and so guarantees that she will never be destroyed. She, he guarantees that those who believe in him as members of his body, as members of his bride, they will not be taken away. Yes, we live in a time after the ascension of Christ, and so we live in an era when the church is in the wilderness. We live in a time of troubles. But both the Christians in the world around, around the world today that are facing this opposition and we here today 
can live daily in the knowledge that the Son will come with the rod of iron and that he will overcome. Take comfort from that, brothers and sisters, and take heed. The one who has left will return in the same way that he left. He will come to earth again, not as a babe this time, but as creation's king. He'll come not with the meekness of a newborn infant, but with the glory, power, and splendor befitting the one who is not just fully man, but who is also fully God. Let us look forward to that day. As children of the King, let us look forward to that day with eagerness and let us prepare ourselves to receive him. Let us humble ourselves, putting our old natures and sinful desires to death and take courage from the fact that our God reigns. And let us eagerly look forward to his return in the flesh when all his enemies will be put to flight and sin and the last enemy, death, will be destroyed. In the words of Job in Job 19, 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall at last stand on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Amen.